I'm uh, always thankful to be here. And um, for those that don't know me, my name is Jason Beals. Uh, for those that know me, um, hi. <laughs> great to great to be a- around you again. There, there's just a lot of good memories that my wife and I share. Uh, and uh, being here, this is the place that uh, we got married. This is a place that we served for many, many years together as a college pastor, oversaw missions here. Um, and uh, in the last uh, five, six years, um, we've continued to keep that relationship and it's just been nice to, to come back. I think the last time I was here to preach was a year ago. And so I, I was telling somebody that... Um, uh, I was shocked to get invited back because um, every time I preach, I, I hear uh, the same thing. Well, I was deep. Uh, and, and so, um, and, and I'm going to hear it again today. Uh, and so uh, buckle up. Um, and, and part of it is this, is that um, what I want to do, I... I want to encourage you by way of sharing what's been on my heart and what I've been working through and thinking through and and prepping. And part of that really goes back to what have I been doing the last number of years? Um, uh, A pastor, I'm sorry, sorry, I was a college pastor here. After that, moved to TMU to be a Bible professor. And I teach all kinds of classes uh, from New Testament survey to theology classes to book studies, things like that. And, uh, and then a, about a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, I, I got um, the IBEX program given to me uh, to oversee. And so now I, I oversee our Israel study abroad. And um, that has brought with it in the last several years uh, lots of trips to Israel. And in fact, um, my wife and I will be heading out Friday to go to Israel for uh, a little bit over two weeks. And we'll be there um, to be a part of the program and uh, to encourage the people that are there. And so um, I, I have this great opportunity to be a part of um, a study abroad in, in the land. And a lot of what you're going to see, so I, I brought pictures today. Uh, and, uh, and that is for this reason. Um, sometimes one of the hardest things to do in teaching the Bible is to help people understand the background of a passage because oftentimes we just kind of jump right in. And so, um, I don't know if you're, um, Lord of the Rings fans or Star Wars fans or any of those, uh, kind of fantasy things, but it, it doesn't matter, um, Whatever movie series that you've watched, you know that if you jump into the last, say, 30 minutes of a movie, there's going to be a lot of context that you're missing out. And you might be able to kind of see some things, but there's just a lot more that's there that helps uh, give the perspective. And so coming to the Old Testament is even harder because um, some people are allergic to their Old Testament uh, and... (laughs) Because uh, it's like you open it up and it's like, oh, they're sinning again and they're being punished again and uh, wash, rinse, repeat. Um, and so, uh, and so, you know, like last semester I taught a class on Leviticus 
And so um, people were like, oh, nobody's going to take that class. And, uh, and we end up having almost 40 students take that class to learn Leviticus. And, and it's like, as they were opening up their Bible, those pages were stuck together, right? It's like, Shh, and you're like, oh yeah, there's a whole book here. Uh, and it actually has important value for today. And the Old Testament is like that. And so uh, there's just a lot that we're going to talk about, but we're going to get into Isaiah 22. And so I'd invite you to turn there and I'll kind of set the stage, uh, so to speak. And I'm basically going to take you on a little Israel tour, uh, brief as it may be. And that's where we're, we're going. And here's the big picture. You have a national crisis. People have prepared to endure the baddest boy on the block, so to speak. Assyria has come and they're getting ready to put the city under siege and they've made all kinds of preparations and Isaiah is going to condemn them for their preparations. But more importantly, because they're not trusting in God, they're trusting in preparing. They're trusting in what they're getting ready to do. I talked about the fact that uh, I've been able to go to Israel a number of times. Uh, in fact, we're going to lead another tour in October through the college, uh, and we'll, I'll be there uh, in a few days. We'll be back there in May. There's just a lot of Israel trips happening, and uh, the funny thing is, is that they were all bunched together now because three years ago at this time, we were getting ready to head to Israel, and the world shut down. And, uh, and it was like two weeks to flatten the curve, right? And we all know how that turned out. Uh, and, and all of a sudden you realize uh, those two weeks are going to be a lot longer. And now I need to flatten my own curve because I've been sitting at home uh, and eating. And so, um, <laughs> and so you, like there's just this, this like the, everything is in chaos and, and you just think, Next year it'll be better, next year it'll be better, next year it'll be better. And uh, so 2023, we're heading out, same time, maybe, uh, because I think it, the world shut down like four days before we were to fly out. So we have another couple days before uh, we see um, if I'm the bad luck for the nation. But, um, but uh, it just reminded me like of all that's happened, and I, I don't know about, if you watch the news or if, uh, if you get your news through Twitter, because uh, it's faster and scarier, uh, and, and as you scroll through Twitter or as you listen to the news or um, read the newspaper, potentially, um, if you're old school, and uh, the world has not gotten better. Um, it's gotten more chaotic. And now, newsflash, if you haven't been paying attention, banking crisis, right? And you're like, oh, great. <laughs> Inflation, eggs cost $1,000, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, and so you start to look around and you like, the, it's, it's chaos. And what happens if all your money is gone? What do you do? What happens if everything that you've been prepping for, preparing. And for some who are more seasoned in life, that's been a lot of prepping and planning. For some starting out, you're like, well, I don't have anything to lose. 
but you haven't lived in a, an economy where there's no money. I remember in 2009 when I was here, I got the chance to go to Zimbabwe because we, we, this church supports Thomas Hadzi, and um, it was right after their economy collapsed. And, and I remember getting, and I still have it, um, I have a billion dollar Zimbabwe dollar that's worthless. Um, and so as you start to think through, like, there are real practical values in going back to the Old Testament to see, like, what does God really call his people to do and to be in the midst of crisis? And that's kind of where we're going to head. But to do that, I, I do have to set the stage. It's going to be a little bit meaty. And what I mean by that is that this is not a, um, you know, put your um, sermon in a blender, turn it on, and then you get to drink it. This, you got to chew. This is like work in your teeth and your jaws. And I don't apologize for that. And you're like, well, you're a professor. Yeah, so it's like, take a, a lecture and take a sermon, and if they had a baby, this is what this would be. So, um, there you go. Uh, here's the big thing. One of the things that I find, and so I have to talk a little faster because I have way more to do, and I know that, um, I know that you don't want to be here till. 2.30. Uh, and so um, here's the big deal. When you get to the Old Testament, one of the challenges with the Old Testament is understanding the foundation bedrock that almost all the prophets go back to. So if you were to go anywhere, say you open your Bible and you go to Isaiah like we're going to go, you go to Jeremiah, you go to any of the minor prophets and you're like, yeah, there, there's a bunch of them. Where are they at? Well, go to Matthew, turn left, right? And that's where you start to find your minor prophets. All of those really have a bedrock foundation, and it's this. If, you, if you're reading and you're like, man, there's a lot of judgment, and there's a lot of God saying, hey, you're going to be punished, and I'm going to bring a nation to punish you, that really goes back to the covenant that Israel had with her God, the Mosaic covenant, that if they obey, God will bless them. He has already redeemed them out of Egypt, so it's not for their redemption, so to speak. He's already taken them out. He's made them his people. But if they are to receive the blessing of God, they have to obey. And if they break that covenant, God will bring curses. And those curses kind of ramp up. And those curses are actually like uh, punishment to get the attention of the nation for them to go, hey, we're actually on the wrong path. We need to wake up. We need to move forward. We need to actually go to uh, move toward God. For instance, when you walk outside and there's a drought and it's been a drought for several years, like in the day of Elijah, that's because they have all walked away from God and followed after Baal. Pretty simple. If you open up your Bible and you say, hey, there's pestilence, that's because They've walked away from the Lord. Every time you look in the Old Testament and you see some kind of judgment, it's because they have walked away from God. They have broken the covenant. And it really goes back to covenant blessings and curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And so with that, the PowerPoint curtain spreads open. And I'm not going to read these verbatim. They're just up here for you to, to think through. This is Deuteronomy 28, and it kind of sets the stage for us because God says this, like, look, if you, if you disobey, these curses will come upon you and overtake you, and they ramp up. They're all designed to bring the nation back, and if the nation continues to ignore God and walk away, he's going to bring more curses and more curses, and it ramps up to nations coming from afar and attacking them. In fact, it goes to this issue of even 
besieging them, putting them under siege. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 is so graphic that God predicts they're going to turn away. He's going to bring all these curses. They're going to continue to push and push and push away to the point where the nations are going to come and surround them. And they're going to have to resort to eating their own flesh. That's pretty graphic. And then, moreover, Yahweh will scatter you from among the people. So what you see in Deuteronomy 28 is this. God's going to bring judgment to get their attention, to call them back. He's going to ramp it up. And it comes to kind of the tipping point where he'll bring a nation in. And if they don't listen, if they don't repent, they will destroy the city, destroy the temple, exile the people out. And it happens again and again and again in the course of the nation. Now, moving to the next, ooh, maps and pictures. You look at that and you go, what, what does that have to do with anything? Okay, think about David and Solomon. By the time Solomon dies, there is a large empire, large nation, large kingdom, if you will, and it's all one. But when Solomon dies and his uh, foolish son, Rehoboam, comes to power, there is a split. In fact, it's based on judgment against Solomon and his sinfulness uh, of uh, idolatry. And so the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, break away from the southern kingdom. And so you see that represented here. And so now you have two kingdoms, if you will, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Why do they bring that up? Because, in case you want to see that backwards, just in case, you know that I'm going to bring my PowerPoint tricks to keep you awake. It's like, oh, history, maps, woo. Um, so this is the land of the Bible and the the darker kind of tan is the Assyrian Empire. And so you see in the top right, this place called Nineveh, that's the capital of Assyria. And, uh, and so they're going to come down and kind of start to make incursions into Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. Hezekiah is going to be one of the key kings of the southern kingdom. We'll talk about him in a moment. But in the northern kingdom, there is, think about this. There is not a single good king in the northern kingdom. Not one. All of them are wicked. So eventually God says, enough. You know, based on Deuteronomy 28, that if they continue to rebuff and rebuff and rebuff and push against and ignore and, and ignore and walk away, when he finally says, I'm done, it's going to be through a nation who comes and destroys and exiles. You know that. It's in the text. Again and again and again going all the way back to Deuteronomy 28. And so you see down there at the red circle, that's Israel, and what's going to happen is the northern kingdom is going to be taken away. Second Kings 17, so the Lord was very angry with them and removed them from his sight, and none was left except the tribe of Judah. So the southern kingdom is the only thing left. The king of Assyria will, in those black circles, will bring men from Babylon, Kutha, from Ava, Hamath, Sepharvim, and settle them into Samaria. So when you go into the New Testament and you start to see the Samaritans, that's because the northern kingdom was taken away, the people that were left, then you transplant. Assyria had this kind of idea that if we take people from other countries, put them in the land, and then later on in the New Testament, you have your Samaritans. So the northern kingdom is taken away in 722 BC. Hezekiah is alive to see this. In his sixth year of ruling, the northern kingdom was taken. You think about that for a moment. 
Okay, let's just say we're in California, land of the fruits and nuts. And uh, let's just say, you know, West Coast um, breaks off from the rest of America. So it's just us. And uh, someone comes down and uh, Canada, feeling their superiority as Canadians, um, no inclination towards the potential pastor that's coming here, um, but the Canadians come and they take away Oregon and Washington and you're like, bye-bye. But maybe a family living there, maybe friends. Um, if, if Canada came and re-established their superiority and took away Washington and Oregon, you're going to have a lot of refugees coming from there, settling in California. And so, what you have is you, you see a very powerful nation come and take the northern kingdom away. Lots of refugees are going to flood into the southern kingdom. A ton of them. That's why when you think about from an Old Testament perspective, Israel has always had 12 tribes. Why? Because when Assyria came to take away the kingdom, lots of refugees from all the 10 tribes came and settled into southern Israel or Judea the southern kingdom. So Hezekiah sees this. He sees it. Imagine, he knows a nation that puts God's people under siege and carries them off into exile means covenant disobedience. So what's he do? Look, there's, there's Jerusalem. And maybe this is your first time seeing ancient Jerusalem in a picture, maybe not. Those walls are a pretty big deal because walls keep people out, right? They protect, especially when you have armies that come up and put people under siege. And so in the midst of all this, you have Hezekiah making preparations. First of all, Hezekiah is one of a handful of good kings. So the northern kingdom, no good king. Southern kingdom, there's a couple. Probably the two most famous, probably the two best kings of Judah, Hezekiah and Josiah. And it just so happens that under Hezekiah's watch, he says, hey, I'm going to make preparations. Why? Political landscape is this. Assyria had come down and taken the northern kingdom like we just talked about. The guy who finished that exile, the Assyrian king, dies. His name is Sargon II in case you are ready for a quiz at the end. Sargon dies. His son, Sennacherib, comes to power. And what happens when the big bad king dies and Junior comes up? You go, I don't know if he's strong enough to take on everybody. So all of the kingdoms that Assyria had captured now rebel. And they go, Psst, we're not paying tribute. And Sennacherib has to show if he is like his daddy. Is he strong enough? Can he do it? So Sennacherib starts to take kingdom by kingdom back. The Babylonians being the first to kind of rebel. And so he's spending time up in his territory. That gives Hezekiah about four years to make preparations because he knows because he stopped paying tribute, and the Bible tells us actually he has rebelled against Assyria. He knows that they're coming. So what does he do? He builds 
this wall right here that goes all the way around. Let me, can you see that green dot? So this is the original city expanded under Solomon where Hezekiah is living. When the northern kingdom is exiled and the refugees show up, they all start living on the western hill, unprotected. So he builds this big broad wall that encapsulates them. And then he's also going to need a water supply. And there's only one spring in all of that area. And so you need water to endure a siege. So he will do what we call Hezekiah's tunnel. From here, he will then make a tunnel. Think about this. Four years it took him to dig that tunnel. We'll look at it a little bit more later. To channel the water to there where Everybody in the city can now go down and get their water. So he's making preparations, right? Let me give you this kind of picture. It's, if you were to look above, this is that original kind of what we would call the tongue that sticks out. Israel is set up with, in Jerusalem in particular, set up with a bunch of valleys. There's this valley here. It's called the Hinnom Valley. There's the Kidron Valley. This is the one that Jesus will cross to go over into the Garden of Gethsemane. So you get the Kidron you have Hinnom Valley, and then there's a central valley that goes and dips down, and then another valley called the Transverse Valley, right? And so, during Hezekiah's time, the red section was built. What he does is that he builds that wall, big wall, to protect the people, and then he works on a water system to bring the water from the outside to the inside. Smart, right? So, Hezekiah sees what happened to the northern kingdom. He prepares. And in the 14th year, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up to all the fortified cities. And here's the deal with Sennacherib. He was better than his dad. Let me put it this way. He was mightier than his dad. Because better might suggest that he was somehow a good guy. No, he wasn't. But he was strong. And when he comes down, he's going to conquer all the territories and all the different countries like Phoenicia and the Philistines and all those guys. And then when he gets to Judah, he captures 46 cities. So imagine it's not just Oregon and it's not just Washington. Now Canada has taken everything but Santa Clarita. And we're left. And you look around and you're like, now, maybe the Canadians don't scare you. Let's, let's give it a little bit of a bigger uh, swirl. The Russians. They were the big baddie when I was a kid. You know, um, Rambo uh, fought the Russians. And then the Chinese. And then now they kind of switch back and forth. Let's just say one of those two show up. And it's just us. Sennacherib is going to destroy 46 cities. This is Lachish. This is one of the key fortified cities that lead up to Jerusalem. You have to go to Lachish before you can get to Jerusalem if you're coming in from a certain angle. And so this is where everybody goes up to invade. The Babylonians will take over Lachish when they show up. The Romans will do it. I mean, it's just, it's a typical thing. This is because of geography. To your left, you see, oops, let me back up here. To your left, you see uh, a big tower. This is the Jews here. And Assyria is building siege ramps. And then anybody that's fleeing, they're impaling on large uh, 
spikes and lifting them up and kind of letting their bodies hang. And then this is what they do when they capture you is uh, they spread you out like, you know, like you're doing like uh, little little snow angels, but that's not actually what's happening here. Uh, They're filleting them. They're actually peeling and cutting the skin off of them. Sennacherib's not a good guy. He's actually militarily powerful. He's going to be uh, a guy you don't mess with. And Hezekiah said, all right, well, let's, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's prepare. Let's hunker down. Let's wait. Let's see kind of idea. And so as we kind of move forward, that's where we're going to get into Isaiah 22. Kind of gives you a big picture. This is right before Sennacherib shows up. It's in the preparation time. And you have what's called the question. And it's pretty simple. Look at how Isaiah 22 comes about. Now, Isaiah's going to live under four different kings for about a, his ministry is about a, a period of 50 years. So Hezekiah is the king now. This is roughly around 705 to 701 BC. And he says this, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now that you have gone up to the roof house or up to the housetops? In other words, what's wrong with you people? And you're like, whoa, wait. Now notice he says it's a burden or an oracle. Usually that's talking about this is judgment. It's a prophecy because it's a vision. And he says, this oracle concerning the valley of vision. Now, he's not talking about the nice Puritan soft cover prayer book. He is talking, in particular, that Jerusalem, which is typically known as like Mount Zion or the Holy Hill, it's usually known by the hills, is now being talked about the valleys that we looked at. Because it's going to be a key part of the condemnation, and prophecy. In other words, what's your problem? What's wrong with you? What is the matter with you? That you have all gone up to your housetops. You're full of noise. You roaring city, you exultant town. So in other words, they're all going up, and you picture this. They have just finished preparing the walls and finished digging the tunnel. And they're ready, and they get up on the housetops, and they party. Like, yeah, look at us. We're ready. Bring on Sennacherib. Like, we have prepared well. And Isaiah doesn't share the same enthusiasm. In fact, he's going to bring about the reality of judgment. He's going to prophesy that if they don't repent, judgment is coming. Because again, Why would God bring a nation to the doorsteps of his people? Covenant disobedience. Why would he threat them with exile? Covenant disobedience. So while they're preparing for the political situation and the military situation, they forgot to prepare in the most significant way. In their heart. And in fact, he's going to say this. You're slain, we're not slain with the sword. Why? Because in a siege, they're going to die of 
starvation, and pestilence. They're going to resort to eating their dead infants. Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in the battle. All your rulers have fled together. You have been captured without the bow. All of you who found were captured together, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I say, turn your gaze away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not insist on comforting me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Again, this is Isaiah. He's basically saying, look, you're joyful when, in fact, there is a destruction coming. Now, pull back. Good news. Are you ready for it? Hezekiah leads the people in repentance. So destruction doesn't come in 701 when Sennacherib finishes Lachish, that city that we just showed, and he finally makes it to Jerusalem. They repent. God protects. But they're not so lucky 115 years later when Babylon comes and they fail to repent. This is actually a prophecy that's fulfilled 115 years later in Babylon. This is what he said in verse 5. For the Lord Yahweh of hosts has a day of confusion, oppression, and panic in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls, a crying to the mountain. Now Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. These are all territories just outside of Babylon that Babylon will take over, and they're kind of joining the army, so you speak. So it's not just the big army that's coming. It's all made up with everybody else, too. It's like the nations coming up against Israel. Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate, and he revealed the defense of Judah. And so that kind of stops the judgment portion for a second. And so what you have here again is the question, why are you partying and celebrating? The reality, judgment's coming, and if you don't repent, you'll be destroyed. And then the issue of trust. Why, is, why are they under judgment? Look at verse 8. And he revealed the defense of Judah. In that day, you looked to. Now, are you with me? I haven't lost you yet, have I? At least four of you haven't. <laughs> In that day, you looked to what? You looked to the weapons. There's an emphasis on looking to something. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy is watching Lord of the Rings. Spoiler alert. If you haven't watched it, it's been 20-some years since it came out. Uh, so, not my fault. Um, Helm's Deep. They're getting attacked by all the orcs. It's brutal. And Gandalf says on the certain day, I think it's like the third day or something, look to the east. And on that day, they look up to the east, and what do they see? The sun shining, this glorious kind of light coming out, and Gandalf on his white horse with his armies, kind of picturing like a song, or I'm sorry, um, Revelation 19 kind of picture. And so when you look to something, you are not just going, oh yeah, there it is. You are, you're placing your trust in that. And so what he says here is this, in that day you looked to the weapons. Now jump down to verse 11 and you see, but you did not look to him who made it. 
So there's an emphasis on looking to something to place your trust. So they look to the weapons of the house of the forest. That's just a building that Solomon created near the temple complex that had housed all the weapons and the shields and the gold. So you you looked to your weapon stash. Verse 9, you saw the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. And so you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You tore down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not look to him who made it, nor did you see him who formed it long ago. What is he saying here? Again, you remember this picture. This is the original city. Hezekiah is going to build this wall to protect the rest of the people in Jerusalem. And so if you go to Israel, if you ever get a chance, you're going to go to, most likely, the, what we call the broad wall, which is that portion up there. And then you have Hezekiah's tunnel with the two different stars, uh, those yellow stars kind of pointing the beginning and the end, the Gihon Spring. What happens is that Hezekiah will take the Gihon spring that's outside. So here's two walls here, one wall here, and then one wall here. And so he's going to take that and he's going to make a conduit or a tunnel all the way through to fill the water here. It's a 1700 foot tunnel that they did in four years. And here's the fascinating thing. They started at different levels, hence right? Because gravity for water. They start at different levels and they start at both ends and they meet in the middle without technology. It's amazing actually when you think about what they accomplished. And sometimes you look at like uh, the ancient world and you're like, oh, they're just cavemans uh, drooling on themselves and painting on the rocks and things like that. Uh, But these are pretty smart people. And so you think about it this way. Here's pictures. Again, I like pictures. Hopefully you do. Um, This is what's called the broad wall. You can go and see that in Israel today. And it's that part right here. Remember, this is the kind of the tongue. This will be where the temple is. This broad wall follows the the valley and uses the valley as part of the defense, right? Because if you do this huge tall wall and you have a valley below it, it makes it much more um, helpful. And so this broad wall, think about it this way. Here's, it's just a a couple um, feet high, the remnants of it, but it is 22 feet wide. And if you notice that little marker up there, that's the actual, those are people, by the way gives you perspective. That's the, the top of it. And it's going to be 26 feet high. So 22 feet wide, 26 feet high. And, and Isaiah 22 actually says that they counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down those houses to make this wall. And there's actually remnants of houses right here. That's why I have that red circle. That you can see the structure of a house that was torn down in which this wall was put forward. Here's the cool thing. And this is why I show you pictures. Real places. Real events with real people who make real spiritual decisions that bring about spiritual consequences. Like these are real. And God is real. And Assyria is real. And they're showing up. 
And so what does he do? He tears down, it's like eminent domain. You remember when there was supposed to be a train that comes through right here? Like that was so many years ago. And, uh, and I think it's just an imaginary train because it hasn't transpired, right? And uh, so isn't that great, right? That you don't have a train coming through here. But eminent domain, right? Hezekiah says, hey, we're going to take those houses. Or the tunnel. You can see it right here. That's the Gihon Spring. And then it weaves its way down to the Pool of Siloam. And he made between the two walls, that would be this outer wall and this inner wall. Between these two walls, he then makes this tunnel to bring the water into the center portion of the city. And so you can see this is Hezekiah's tunnel. If you go there, uh, if you have claustrophobia, it's not fun, uh, but everybody else enjoys it. And then when you're a big guy like me, it gets a little bit dangerous. Don't want to get, don't, I don't want to stop up Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, and so I get nervous going in there, but you can actually see the pickaxes um, and the marks of how they then chiseled this from both ends, from this end to this end, not in a straight line, but using the geography and the contours to actually meet in the middle. There's, you can tell where it meets in the middle because that's where it gets the most shallow and that's where I get the most claustrophobic when I go through because uh, you've got to kind of bend down and shuffle through. In fact, here's another picture of it. The Gihon Spring, protected by this one wall, then takes the water all the way through into the other side. Preparations for the city. So what's the issue? The issue in particular is not about making preparations. Because you've all read Proverbs, right? Probably one of the most famous for uh, a sluggard is he's too lazy to bring his hand up. Or he's like a door. Right? Over, back on the side, over to the side, sleeping in. So you know that God actually requires you to prepare, to be wise, to use the resources for his glory and his honor. So it's, the preparation is not the issue. In fact, Proverbs says, man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And that's a key important part because it's not the issue of preparation, it's the issue of trusting in your preparation. See, Hezekiah and the people said, hey, we're going to build a big wall. Keep Assyria out. We're actually going to make this amazing tunnel to bring water in so that we keep the water from them and we keep it for us if they put us under siege. And we're going to have all these plans and we're going to, we're going to get our military strategy and we're going to make sure we get all our weapons and, and we're, going to, we're going to wait it out. But the one thing they didn't prepare is themselves spiritually. In fact, they didn't trust the Lord. Verse 12, therefore in that day, Lord Yahweh of hosts called you to weeping and to wailing, to shaving of the head, to wearing a sackcloth. Instead, behold, there is joy and gladness, the killing of cattle and the slaughtering of sheep and the eating of meat and the drinking of wine. And let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. That's a pretty famous saying. But what do you have? They're rejoicing instead of repentance. And in essence, going to the point where, well, look, even if he shows up and he kills us, well, we're going to enjoy now. We're going to live in the moment. What's God saying? Verse 14. But Yahweh of hosts revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity 
shall not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord Yahweh of hosts. And the issue isn't that they're, they're beyond saving. The issue is that he's going to bring judgment. And if they don't repent, if they don't show externally an inward condition, weeping and wailing and shaving of the head and putting on sackcloth is an outward of what's happening inward. That they've actually come and said, we have trusted in ourselves. We repent of that. We're going to trust in you, Lord, even when the chaos of the world is outside our door. So they're going to get judged. And then you have this, and I have to go through this part quickly, verses 15 to 25, you have a tale of two two different guys. Shebna, that's a great name, Shebna, and Eliakim. Look at verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here. You who hewn a tomb on the height. You who carve a dwelling place for yourself in the cliff. What's he talking about? Shebna is actually the second guy in charge. He's like the top guy outside of Hezekiah. And he's in charge of all the preparations. And what is he doing? He's preparing a huge burial monument for himself and his family. Because if he dies, he wants to die in style and be remembered by everybody else. In fact, it goes on to say, verse 18, and he will surely, sorry, verse 17, behold, Yahweh is about to hurl you headlong, O man, and is about to grasp you firmly, and he will surely roll you tightly like a ball. You think about it this way. The picture is God grabbing Shebna, picking him up, rolling him in his hands into a ball, and chucking him into a different country. Because exile means covenant disobedience. So Shebna is going to be removed. And Eliakim is going to be elevated. Look at what it says about Eliakim in verse 20. And then it will be in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of uh, Hilkiah. And he will, you will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash around him. So Shebna's kind of like in disgrace and kind of giving him his, his uh, garments of authority. I will give your authority into his hand. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then will set the key of the house of David on his shoulders. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. This will be quoted in Revelation 3. And so you, uh, so you have this kind of like interesting dynamic where Eliakim now becomes the top guy. Let me back up and pause. Sennacherib hasn't made his way there yet. They have made all these preparations because they know Assyria is coming and Assyria is bringing a mighty force of all the nations they've conquered and put into military. So they prepare, they plan, they get up and they cheer. Yeah, look at us. Yeah, we're excited. Look at what we've done. Look at this amazing, huge, wide, tall wall. I can't believe we took a tunnel and we started from two different ends and met in the middle and now we have water inside the city. Assyria surely can't do anything to us. And then you have a leader who's actually more concerned about his self 
centered self-promotion, making his own tomb all glorious and grand and said, hey, you know, if we die, we die. Well, let's enjoy the moment. But God's going to humble Shebna and he's going to elevate Eliakim. And then you have Hezekiah's response. Turn, if you will, to chapter 36. And I hope I haven't lost you because I don't hear very many pages turning. (laughs) Isaiah 36. And let me just read for you really briefly. Now it happened in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, the Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. 46 to be total. In fact, Sennacherib tells us that he destroyed, filleted, and exiled so many people. And king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh to Lachish and Jerusalem and to King Hezekiah. And so this guy shows up and he surrounds them. And look at verse 3. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household. So you remember what Isaiah just talked about in chapter 22 has now happened. Shebna has been demoted to scribe. So Eliakim is now second in control. Shebna, the scribe, and then another guy, Joab. Joah. So listen to what Rabshakeh says. Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this trust that you have? I say your counsel and might for the war are only empty words. Now in whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? But you trust in the staff of a crushed reed, even Egypt? Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So now come and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horsemen if you're able to put riders on them. And how can you turn away one official? So what he's basically saying is this. You can't trust anybody. You can't trust Yahweh. You can't trust Hezekiah. In fact, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find 2,000 men to get on them, and they can't even beat one of our military soldiers. Verse 12. Rebshakeh says this, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words? Because Eliakim and Shebna said, hey, 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 hey. Don't speak in the language that everybody else can speak. We know Aramaic. Speak in that one. And Rebshakeh says, nope, because I want to scare everybody. This is what he says. Has my master sent to me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Sennacherib is finishing destroying Lachish, the 46th city that has fallen in 701 BC. He has filleted, he has impaled, He has set up skulls in huge mounds. He has exiled over 200,000 from these 46 cities. He's on his way. You think you should trust in Yahweh? These are the people that sat on their rooftop cheering, look at what we did. Verse 22. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with what? With their clothes torn. A sign of repentance. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now it happened that when Hezekiah heard it, what did he do? He said, oh, we're fortified, we're good. Hey, I made a tunnel. They named it after me. Several thousand years later, people are going to waddle through it. No, he tore his clothes. And he entered into the house of Yahweh. Verse 2. Then Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe and the elders, covered with sackcloth. So now Hezekiah is leading the nation in repentance and trust in Yahweh. Chapter 37, verse 14, he says this. Then Hezekiah took the letter from Sennacherib, went into the house, spread it out before Yahweh, and he prayed to Yahweh. Look at what he says, and I won't spend much time on it, but look at what he says. O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Notice what Hezekiah does. He says, you are the only one You've created all of this. You are even in control of the Assyrian army. Incline your ear, verse 17, and hear. So Hezekiah humbly, even after all his preparations, leads the nation in repentance. And you know what happens? God saves the nation. Chapter 37, verse 33 Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Israel, he will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, by the same he will return, and he will not come to the city. Now think about it. Their chariots, just like Isaiah 22 said, filled in all the valleys, putting this city under siege. Every other city has fallen. This city is not going to last even with all the preparations and all the trust that they placed in their own military war, the only one who can save them is Yahweh. And that's who they turn to. And with the armies filling the land, circling Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord shows up and slaughters 185,000 Assyrians. Amen and amen. In a picture not unlike what's going to happen in a global scale in Revelation 19 when the king comes and rules with a rod of iron and destroys all his enemies. Kind of a precursor to that. And what does Israel have to do at that point? Look upon whom they have pierced and mourn, repent, turn to their king. The same thing is happening here. Sennacherib, tucks his tail, goes back to Assyria, lives for 20 years after this event. And then while he's in his temple praying to his God, his two sons come up and kill him. That's how Sennacherib dies. You think about this whole story. And again, I know it's a, like an Old Testament whirlwind that I just uh, unleashed upon you. When you think about when we get to this point, you have a couple things in terms of what we've looked at. First, Preparations are not bad. 
But your security is not in pensions. It's not in politics. It's not in banks. And we're probably not far from another crisis. Where will you turn to trust? In what or in whom will you place your trust? The one who can destroy 185,000 warriors through the angel of Yahweh, the one who actually is the God of the universe. Isaiah says, all of the waters are in his hands. The one who the span of his hand can mark out the universe, the span, thumb to pinky. That God or your 10,000 you saved that can buy you eggs? <laughs> who do you trust? The other thing is, like even in times of crisis, who do you serve? You have Shebna. Who served himself? And God demoted him, and we don't know what happened to Shebna. But God said he's going to roll him up like a ball, toss him out. And you have Eliakim, who, by all accounts, was faithful even in the midst of crisis. So you have these two guys, and in the midst of chaos and crisis, are you going to be self-seeking, self-gratifying, self-preservation? Or are you going to be other-centered? Those are just two of many applications that you could walk away with, but I think the final is this, is that are there places that you need to repent, ask for forgiveness, for trusting in yourself, or put it this way, living for the moment versus living in light of eternity. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we do not lose hope because even in the momentary light affliction, we look toward and forward to the eternal weight of glory. Amen? And amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just the opportunity to, to teach and to look at Isaiah 22 and, and all that's really that we have here. And, and Lord, I pray that you would encourage your church, that you would encourage each and every one of us to trust unwaveringly in you when the world is in chaos when politics and preparation can no longer offer any security. Lord, even before that, help us to be people who trust in you for everything that we do, everything that we are, and everything that we have. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.